What's up, everyone? My name is Michaela Nemhard, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's get ready to hear the word. Good morning, Sanctus Church. It's a great joy and a delight to be with you this morning. I'm so thankful for this church and its ministry. I'm also thankful for my friendship with my colleague, John Thompson. And so what a joy and delight to be able to preach to you today. As we take a look at God's word today, you've been in a study on the names of God. God has revealed himself with a variety of names to show us who he is in his essence and nature and character. And this morning, we're looking at what it means that God is the Lord our righteousness. He is the Lord our righteousness. He is Jehovah Sidkenu. So what does it mean that God is righteous? It means that God is just, that God is right, that God is true. Those characteristics are all who God is, right and just and true. He is righteous. He is a holy God. He sets the standard for moral obligation. And he's granted to us what those moral obligations are. So why does it matter? Well, it matters because God is righteous, because God is holy, only that which is holy and righteous can enter into his presence. If an object or a person isn't holy or righteous, they can never enter into the presence of God. And so here's the dilemma. All of us know that we're not righteous. We all know that we fall short of the glory of God. We sin. We do things that break the moral obligations that God requires of us. So that's quite a dilemma. Let's take a look at the Bible to talk about how God resolves that dilemma because he is the Lord, our righteousness. Turn with me to Jeremiah 33, beginning at the first verse. Jeremiah 33, the first verse, the word of God says this. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed and established it, the Lord is his name, call to me. I will answer you. I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of the people I will slay in my anger and wrath, and I will hide my face from this city because of its wickedness. Jeremiah is a great prophet of the Lord, and he is here in the post-exilic time. The Assyrians have already come through the northern kingdom, taken a few people into exile, but for the most part, they occupied the northern kingdom. The Babylonians have now come through the southern kingdom and they have desolated the southern kingdom of Judah and taken many people into exile. And Jeremiah the prophet is letting them know that this has happened because of the will of the Lord. Now note what he says in verse two. The Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed and established it, this is our God. We are creatures. God has made us. 
We sometimes like to think that we're the top, the pinnacle of all of creation, but we're not. Our world likes to think it is. That's why in our Western culture, they want to assume that the world, the universe, could either self-create, where nothing could become something, or the world was able to allow matter that they would believe has always existed move from an inorganic state to an organic state. No one on the planet can explain how that is even plausible. And we know our God did it. Our God created the heavens and the earth, and we are creatures. But because we have defied him, because we have rebelled against him, he tells us his fierce anger and wrath are against us. He says to his people, your streets are going to be filled with dead bodies because I will slay you with my anger and wrath. In fact, he says, I'm going to hide my face from you. Because of all of your wickedness, I'm no longer going to listen to you. This reminds us of the book of Genesis, where we're told the wages of sin is death. That if we sinned against God, the penalty, the punishment would be death. And that we would die relationally with God and with each other. We would die physically. We would die emotionally. We would die psychologically. And we would die spiritually. We die in all of those ways. You know, if you lie to your spouse or to a good friend, there's a tear in your relationship. They no longer trust you. And so there's death. And so the wages, the penalty, the punishment for sin is death. And God has the right to judge because we are creatures made by him. Now, sometimes this is the only caricature we think of when we think of God. We think that God is simply the God of anger and wrath, the God who slays his people or hides his face. And yet, although his righteousness demands holiness, God is also a God of love. We at James North, the church I pastored for 28 years, have cared extensively for the Karen people. The Karen people are refugees from Burma who spent the first decades of their life, anytime they were in Burma or Thailand refugee camps, without electricity, without running water, without sanitation. When they came to Canada, many of whom only had a grade seven education in the jungle or refugee camps, their teenagers were placed in whatever grade their age was. So if they were 16 years old, they're placed in grade 11. Even though they don't know English and they only have a grade seven ed education from a refugee camp. So many of them dropped out of school. Many of them walked away from the Lord. They would hear people say God doesn't exist and ask their parents, why do you believe God exists? Their parents would simply say, because we do. Their kids thought that's no answer and walked away from the Lord. One of those young men was Tune. His best friend had committed suicide and he walked away from the Lord, indulged in a lifestyle of all kinds of drugs. His parents said, you can't live here anymore. You can't be with us. They ostracized him. And they, in essence, they hid themselves from him because of the evil he was doing, the wrong he was committing. But that's not where God wants to leave us. You see, God's salvation is full. Look at verse 6 of Jeremiah 33. Nevertheless, Jeremiah says, the Lord, speaking through Jeremiah, I will bring health and healing to the land. I will heal my people and I will let them enjoy abundant peace and prosperity. 
I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity. I will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all sin that they have committed against me. And I will forgive all their sin of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renowned joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and they will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. So this is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is desolate, waste, without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be her, uh, they will be heard once more. The sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, and they will say, but I'll pause there. God says, I long to bring healing and health. Do you believe that about our God? He longs to bring into your life healing and health. Nobody says, I'm going to bring abundant peace and security. I mean, they have been at war. The Babylonians have been executing them. War is a horrific thing. I mean, right now we can look at wars going on in our world today. We can see the terror and horror of war. It was the same in their day. They feared the Babylonians. Will they be ransacking their house? Will they be assaulting their women? Will they be taking their young men captive? Will they be executing their children? They lived in fear and God says, I'm gonna bring you abundant peace. I'm gonna bring you abundant security. To them, that was so far from what they were experiencing. And yet it's what God promised. Note, not only is God gonna look after them physically, but note spiritually, God says in verse eight, I will cleanse you from all the sin you've committed against me. Our sin is firstly and foremostly against God. King David knew that. Against you, you only have I sinned. God says he's gonna cleanse them from their sin. He's gonna forgive all of their sin of rebellion against him. And his witness will be renowned. He'll be famous. The joy and praise and honor of God will be known to every nation. But how? How is any of this possible? I mean, if God is righteous and we can't enter into the presence of a righteous one, how will our sin be forgiven? How will this rebellion be forgiven? Well, we'll continue in part here of the next verse, verse 9. So give thanks to the Lord Almighty. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Jeremiah declares that God is good. He is a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. His love endures forever. That reminds us of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who says these three things remain, faith hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Our faith will be sight, our hope will be realized, love will guide for all of eternity. We will bask in God's love. 
And the Lord says he will also restore the fortunes of the land. He will bless Israel as he had done before. Note, the Lord will restore. Verse 12. And so this is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place that's desolate and without people or animals, in the towns there will be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. There will be the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, the territory of Benjamin, in the villages of Jerusalem, the towns of Judah. Flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. You see, when the Babylonians came through, they took all the livestock. They took all the flocks. They took all the money. They desolated the towns. They destroyed the cities. And God is saying that not only will I forgive your sin, not only will I restore you for your rebellion, not only will I bring you peace and security, but I will grant you your economy again. I will bless you with your sheep. I will bless you with your livestock. I am that kind of God. And how's he going to do it? Well, the Lord is our righteousness. Verse 14, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, verse 15, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. That's how the NIV translates it. Or, I think better translated, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah says that the days are coming when the Lord, who declares this, will fulfill the good promise he made. What's the good promise he made? God promised that there would be Messiah. He promised it on the day of the curse that though the serpent would strike at the heel of the descendant of Eve, this Messiah, this Christ, would crush its head. He promises it, a Messiah, a Christ, through the Davidic line. And here we're told that through the line of David, a righteous branch will come. He will be just. He will be right. And note the language. Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will find safety because he is the righteous Savior. He is the Lord, our righteousness. You find similar language in Jeremiah 23 where the Lord accuses the shepherds of the people. This is likely the kings of the people because in Jeremiah 23, he both talks about the shepherds and the prophets and their corruption. So likely the shepherds, he's talking about the kings he does that for the first four verses. Then in verse five, very similar to Jeremiah 33, the Lord says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, who will do just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior, or the Lord, our righteousness. That is our God. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is the one who could bring safety and salvation. And so we find this theme of the messianic promises, 
the Lord our righteousness, who will come to redeem, who will come to cleanse, who will come to save from sin, all through the Old Testament. Just a few passages. Psalm 31. The righteousness, God's righteousness, so he says, has always been our hope. Look at this in Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Notice his righteousness is linked with his salvation. It's God's righteousness that will save us. Isaiah 45, something very similar. Verse 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Notice, let your righteousness rain down so it can bring salvation. John Stott says this. The righteousness of God refers to his righteous character, his saving initiative, his gift of righteous standing. And so his righteousness is connected to his saving work. Why? Because our greatest need is a savior. We know that if God's righteousness means that we need to uphold all of his moral obligations perfectly, that we can't, none of us can. We know we all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. And so this isn't simply God's on our side, the Lord our righteousness. God's going to fight for us, the Lord our righteousness. This is God is going to save us, the Lord our righteousness. We need someone who can take us from death to life. We need someone who can save us from our sin. I think of Rick. He was a young man who grew up in the north end of Hamilton. Rick grew up in a Buddhist home. Rick began to attend our youth when he was in grade eight. And after hearing the gospel a number of times, God saved him. Rick's home was a hard home. When Rick's dad, uh, when Rick was six years old, his dad had won $400,000 and became a drug cartel with the money and was incarcerated for 10 years. Rick's dad bought his mom, or his wife, sorry, Rick's mom, a home, probably cost at the time sixty-nine dollars or $79,000. And they lived in this small home. And for Rick's mom to make ends meet, she worked 12-hour days at a farm that immigrants work at. She would take the bus there. She would work a 10-hour day and take the bus home and rent every portion of that house out so that they could live. The only place Rick had for solitude was his own room, and they were Buddhists. But Rick continued to hear the gospel, and God saved him. The night before Rick was baptized, he, his mom came to his room and sat down on his bed beside him and said, Rick, we're Buddhists, not Christian. I'm not going to stop you from getting baptized, but I'm not going to come. Most of us have family in, that come to our baptisms. None of Rick's family came to his baptism. He came alone, though he'd invited about 30 friends, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. Young people from the school he was at in high school came to witness the baptism of Rick. And on the day he was baptized, he looked out on everyone and he said, I thought my academics would fulfill me, but then I realized they weren't. 
I thought my athleticism would fulfill me, but then I broke my arm and realized I'm fragile, and it wouldn't. He thinks he's quite good-looking, so he would then say, I thought being good-looking would fulfill me, and all the girls liking me would fulfill me, but it didn't either. And he turned to all of his friends, and he said, the only thing I've found that fulfills me is Jesus Christ and him alone. Only he can fulfill, only he can satisfy. And I implore you today, he said, to know him as Savior. God saved him. The Lord, our righteousness. So we hear this declared in the Old Testament, that the Lord, our righteousness, will cleanse sin, will forgive rebellion, will grant peace and security, will allow people to prosper again. How does he do it? Well, let's turn to the book of Romans for a few minutes to understand that. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. The culmination of all of God's righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which all of the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. F.F. Bruce says this about Christ. The law is upheld, sin is condemned, righteousness is vindicated, and the scriptures are fulfilled. Did you know what the verse said in verse 21? Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testified. The law told us God's moral obligation. The law, the Ten Commandments, Levitical law, it told us the nature and character of God and how we were to live if we were to live in such a way that we could get to heaven. But because we could never do so, because we could never perfectly keep the obligations of the law, the righteous one came down. God the Son, the second person of our triune God, the Lord our righteousness, cloaked his deity with humanity, and he entered into time and space, confined himself to a woman's womb, was born of a virgin, and lived here for 33 years. He fulfilled the law in two ways. The first is he is the one of whom the law and the prophets testified. The law and the prophets speaking of Messiah who would come, Christ who would come. He fulfilled every messianic promise. But he also kept the law because he is the righteous one. You see, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. But God couldn't just send him on Good Friday to do so. In order to qualify to be our Savior, he had to live a life of righteousness and perfectly keep the law. That's the second way he fulfills the law. He keeps the law in every way, perfectly. He never sins. In Jesus, he fulfills righteousness by keeping all of the moral obligations of his Father. The Spirit of God allows him to do so. And so Jesus keeps all of the moral obligations of the Father. And by doing so, he is our righteous one. He's qualified to be our Savior. Some people say, why Jesus? Why him? Why wasn't there another way? You see, because humanity sinned, humanity deserved the wrath of God. But 
humanity could never absorb God's wrath. And so God, in his loving kindness, wanting to save us, knew that the only way he could do so would be if he absorbed the wrath that we deserved. And so God the Son, Jesus Christ, came down. His life, Jesus' life of perfect obedience was just as necessary as his perfect atonement on the cross. Both are equally necessary for our salvation. And so he is the Lord, our righteousness, having never sinned. Well, Romans 3 continues, because we all equally deserve hell. Listen to this, the end of verse 24. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's glory. We know that. At times we're greedy. At times we're bitter. At times we struggle with lust and pornography. At, 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 at times we will not forgive someone. We sin in a variety of ways. Our pride, our arrogance, and Jesus on the cross absorbed the wrath of the Father as he became our sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And he justifies us. Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross so that he could grant us his righteousness. Remember, the only way we could be in God's presence was to be righteous. So Jesus, the righteous one, the Lord, our righteousness, he gave us his righteousness to any who believe. It is the great news of the gospel. You see, because of our depravity, our sinfulness, and depravity is often confusing. We often think, well, that's a pedophile. That's a murderer. That's a mass murderer. No, Depravity is not that we are in every way as bad as we could be. Depravity is that we're not in any one way as good as we should be. It's total in that we are not in any one way as good as we should be. It's depravity because we are not good according to God's standard. And so we're all guilty, guilty of sinning against our God. And so how does he forgive us? You see... God took our sin. He grants us his righteousness because he is the Lord, our righteousness. So that when God looks at anyone who's accepted Jesus, anyone who's turned from their sin, anyone who's trusted him as savior, anyone who said, I was believing this and I shouldn't believe this anymore. And I turned to God in my belief for anyone, anywhere, anytime who does that, God grants them his righteousness. And when God looks at us, he sees his son. Praise his name. That is a great God. You see, God treated Christ the way we deserved on the cross so that God could treat us the way Christ deserves in judgment. God treated us the way we, God, sorry, treated Christ the way we deserved on the cross. Jesus was slayed in the anger and wrath of the Father. Remember that from the passage in Jeremiah? The Father's 
face was hid from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went through the torturous moment on the cross and not just the agonizing physical pain, but the spiritual agony of the Father's wrath being poured out on him as the innocent righteous one became our sin so that God could treat us the way Christ deserves in judgment. One day in judgment, when we stand before God, he will treat you as his son deserves if you know him. He will treat you as innocent, though guilty you are, because Jesus saves that completely. He is the Lord, our righteousness. Praise his name. Listen to this part of Romans 3, verse 25. He did this. He presented himself as this sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He says of the Old Testament believers that all the sacrifices, they were just a placeholder to the coming of Christ who would save them completely. We know that. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but Jesus can. And who can be saved? Well, in verse 22, it said the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe that this is for anyone who believes. God is able to save anyone. And it's not about the quality of your faith. You see, your faith is not what saves you. It's the object of your faith. Tim Keller says, it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. We're saved by Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. You see, it would have been an act of injustice for God to set aside his wrath. So he absorbed it himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God's own great love, John Stott says, propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his son. So I bring you back to Tune, the young man who was kicked out of his home. His grandfather took him in. His grandfather couldn't read his own language, the Karen language, let alone English. But his grandfather loved Jesus. The only scripture that man knew was that which he could memorize. And he was a faithful witness to his drug-addicted grandson. His grandfather passes away. On the day of his funeral, Tune was there. And he was thinking about his grandfather. And he realized in that moment, those moments at the funeral, that what made his grandfather a great man, the witness that his grandfather had, the fame we heard about in Jeremiah, of the joy of our God, the peace that the other nations would see that Israel had from God, that his grandson, Tune, could see in his grandfather. He had no other explanation for it, but the Lord, our righteousness himself, had granted that to his grandfather. And quietly at that funeral service that day, that young man gave his life to Jesus Christ. God saved him. He went home, got rid of all of his drugs. God changed his life drastically. And when I baptized him in January, his father, who had ostracized him, played so his son could sing at his own baptism. That is the restoring nature of our God. That is what the Lord, our righteousness, does. 
He said to Israel, I will bring restoration. I will bring peace. I will bring security. I will forgive your sin. I will forgive your rebellion. He does so because in Jesus Christ, he took all of that on the cross for us so he could grant us his righteousness and the Father could treat us as if we're Jesus himself. What great news. What an incredible gospel. I think of Wally again, one of the young men from the Karen community. He came to the church one Sunday afternoon to say goodbye to everyone. He was going to go home to end his life. And on that Sunday, I happened to be preaching there. At the end of the message, he came up to me. He was weeping. I gave him a big hug. I said, what's wrong? He said, everything. I said, do you have time to meet this week? He said, he did. The next night we met, as we met, he began to confess sin to me. I began to pray over him as he was confessing sin and just asked him to allow the spirit of God to minister to him. God broke through that night. God saved him. He said this as he was being baptized a couple of months later. He said, as I left that night, I got into my car and I put on worship music. And as I drove home for the first time in my life, I knew God's spirit was in me. I'd experienced something I'd never experienced before. I knew I was cleansed. I knew God had saved me. I knew God was in me. And for the first time ever, I worshiped him. That is what the Lord, our righteousness does. He can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is a holy, just, and true God. As we were reminded in Jeremiah 33, he has created us. He's made all things. We are creatures. We have rebelled. And yet, though we rebelled, he promised Messiah would come. He promised Christ would come. And he did. He fulfilled the law. In every Old Testament promise, he fulfilled them. And he was righteous his entire life. He kept every moral obligation of the law so that he could qualify to be our savior. The wrath of the father is poured out on him on the cross while he's experiencing this torturous moment in history. And as the father hides his face and the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so you could be welcomed into the kingdom and family of God. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He grants you his righteousness for anyone who believes because though he died on the cross three days later, the power of the Father raised him to life again. He is King of kings and Lord of lords reigning on high. And maybe you're here today listening. Maybe you're watching online. And as you're doing so, you're feeling like, man, Dwayne, I'm a believer, but I experience all this guilt. I experience all this condemnation. Listen, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. When God looks at you as his child, he sees his own son. And one day in glory, he will treat you as Jesus deserves, innocent, an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. Welcome into eternity where our faith will be sight, where our hope will be realized, but where love, love will reign forever because Jesus will reign forever. And maybe you're sitting here today and you feel like, Dwayne, this is too good. All I need to do is turn to him. All I need to do is believe. All I need to do is trust him. That's it. That's it. 
And maybe you feel like, well, Dwayne, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. I mean, you talk about people breaking God's moral obligations. You talk about lying or pride. What I have done, you know, the atrocities that I've committed. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father on the cross for those sins, whatever they may be. That is the good news of the gospel. And even today, if you turn to him, even today, if you long to know him, even today, if you turn from whatever you've hoped in, whatever you've believed in, whatever you've trusted to him, he will save you because he is the Lord, our righteousness. He will take your sin upon him and grant you his righteousness so that one day when you stand before the Father, he will treat you as Jesus deserves because he will see the blood of his son covering you. He saves. He saves to the uttermost because he is the Lord, our righteousness. And he grants us his righteousness by way of a sinless life through the Lord Jesus Christ and a cross so that he can redeem a people for himself and welcome us into his presence now. We get to enjoy his presence now and for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? We thank you, God, that you are the one who created all things. And we thank you that you, though you created all things, in our rebellion, you provided a way for us to be redeemed. We thank you that you are the Lord, our righteousness, and we thank you, Jesus Christ, that you came and you fulfilled all righteousness perfectly. And then you took our sin upon yourself so that you could grant us your righteousness for anyone who believes. God, for some who are listening today who are struggling because they feel condemned and guilty, oh God, may you free them from their guilt and may you let them know that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For some who may be today listening online or here at Sanctus Church who are wrestling with knowing you because they right now aren't your children. They aren't, right now aren't walking with you. Spirit of God, may you move in them in such a way that today they will know that they can be saved. That even today, some would turn to you from whatever they believed in, whatever they've hoped in, to trust in you. So we thank you that you are the Lord, our righteousness. We thank you that that's not just a name or a title, but you demonstrated that you are the Lord, our righteousness, perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this in his resurrected name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you, Sanctus Church. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. All right, I pray you're blessed by the word and we'll see you next week.